to Art Wash Podcast. I'm your host, Tori. Today is a very special episode. Um, as you heard, I have a person here talking with me. I don't know if I've said her name yet, but it's Marissa Trevino, my friend. And you said it the widest way possible. Still. <laughs> we literally talked about this. I morning. feel like <laughs> when I get on a microphone, my customer service voice comes out, and then you have to, you go like up three notches. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, it's really bad. Every time it's like, answer the phone with a smile, so your voice just goes up like five octaves. And yeah. You're like, yeah. Hi, how are you? <laughs> You start screaming into the mic. <laughs> Flashbacks to when I was teaching at the paint pub. Hi, today we're going to learn how to do this painting. You're going to use your baby brush. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Fuck. I feel like that's the kind of voice that I use with some of my clients at times. And I'm just like, I'm so sorry. Like, it just comes out. Like, I can't help it. If you've ever worked in the service industry, you know. Um, so, yes, welcome back to Artwatch Podcast. Today we're actually going to be talking about Teotihuacan, but before we jump into that, I just wanted to go over the general logistics. So, still having some trouble with Pandora, Alexa, and iHeartRadio for some reason, even though I have actually submitted multiple times the podcast. They have yet to contact me back, and it's been it's been a little bit longer than the waiting period, so... Fingers crossed it gets uh, fixed soon. Um, But make sure, because obviously if you're listening, you're subscribed somewhere. But if you aren't subscribed and you're just downloading or streaming, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Deezer, and literally everywhere else you get your podcasts except Pandora, Alexa, and iHeartRadio. Damn, I'm missing out. Huh? I'm missing out. I I know. Um, Alexa, she's not not talking to us. I don't know. (laughs) Um, make sure you follow me on social media at Artwatch Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Like I've said in the past, if you really want me to make a Facebook page, I can. I don't know how many people still use Facebook. I I know personally I use it to keep it's in touch. Dark ages. I, I keep I use it to keep in touch with people that I like family members or like I have a friend in Mexico and I use that as like messenger. Although now it's I guess it's a we, digital yearbook. That's all it is. Basically at this point, yeah. And like now my Facebook feed is just filled with people having babies and I'm like, oh God, no. <laughs> Too young for that. I think I feel. I'm older than you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but like on mine, like I have people, oh, we're getting off topic. Okay. <laughs> Retrack. Yes. Okay, so patron shout out to Caitlin. Thank you so much for being my very first patron and supporting all of the endeavors for this podcast. And while we're talking about patrons, do you want to become a patron of the arts? You should, you know, become a patron for Art Watch Podcast. There's a couple different levels. I fuck, I should have pulled this up before. We were so excited. Okay, we were having, um, I don't know if if the earlier stuff is going to get cut out, but we were having a lot of issues with trying to get two microphones to work because I have a PC and she's got a Mac and for some reason on PC they make it like 10 times harder and you have to like download something. Anyway, so let me pull up my Patreon. is the short term for prehistoric computers. Shut the fuck up. Mac is magnificent Apple computer. (laughs) really good on the fly. Okay, so this is what happens when you get me around my friends. I get on topic really quickly. We should have done a Zoom. Like, we we should have done a Zoom. We can't look at each other and like, have a serious conversation. I know. Man. Flashbacks to Mexico. 
which we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> really some of the so, stories. So, back to the patron level. So, there's the first one, Friend of Art Watch. It's $3 a month, and it's just general support for the podcast, and obviously I'm so, so grateful if you decided to do that. The next level is for $6 a month called Art Watcher. You get the general patron or patron shout out on the actual air, which is like why we shouted out to Caitlin and general support. And of course, you'll get close friends on Instagram. And I think Twitter is starting to do that now. I'll have to double check. But I know they're doing stories or it's called like fleet or something. I don't know. I don't use Twitter that much. Um, But if it does, if they do have it on Twitter, I'll do it on Twitter as well. Um, And then the... The third level is Art Lover, $12 a month, everything from the ones before, plus you start to get merch discounts and special sales as soon as I get the merch website up, which will be, I I, I keep saying it's going to be soon, but I I really think I'm going to get it done this weekend because I'm really excited to start putting together merch. The fourth level for being a patron is $30 a month. And if you do this, thank you so much. I mean, thank you for everybody else, too, but I know $30 a month is a lot. And, um, you know, thank you for being able to do that. You get everything above, and then you'll start getting exclusive content on Patreon, and you'll get um, actual things of merch. So you'll get a sticker mugger tote once per quarter, and then the designs will change each season. I just got and enlarger for my traditional photography. So one of those might actually be one of my own photographs, handmade by me. Um, And then the next level is gonna be Art Scholar, $50 a month, everything from the previous levels. And then on top of the other merch that you're gonna get included in your Patreon patron membership, I don't really know what it's called, I should, but I don't. Um, you'll also get a t-shirt for the summer, because, you know, summer, you gotta have a t-shirt. And then you'll get a hoodie for the fall, just in time for it to start getting cold. Um, like the art expert, the designs will change each season. And, yeah, you'll have something new. And any level that you become a patron, I am eternally grateful, because you're helping me do what I love and get paid for it. Um, so 100%, thank you so much. Um, Which brings us to today's topics, now that we've got all the logistics out of the way. So we are going to talk about Teotihuacan featuring Marisa Trevino, um, my friend from... I see, I said it the right way. (laughs) I I fought the customer service voice. Um, So, yeah, so... Marissa, how did we meet? (laughs) Mexico! (laughs) Where all good friendships and stories start. Nice, yeah, so... Yeah, (laughs) we met on study abroad with UH, and it was for Mesoamerica, so it's just super cool, and we actually obviously didn't know each other because we met there, but a lot of our classmates um, thought that we had known each other for a really long time because of how quickly we clicked, and we're basically the same fucking person. We constantly get the whole, like, aren't you guys sisters? Yeah, yeah, we got that a couple times. Yes. Um, which we do look alike, which is... We, we always say that we're the same, but we're not the same. same. Yeah, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm very tall. <laughs> you like, just call me out for being <laughs> short It's something I can't even, like, control. That's, that's all right, it's all right. <laughs> very I'm tall. We're the same, but we're not the same. same. No, we're not. <laughs> so, Marissa, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because, obviously, like, you're my first guest on the podcast, which is super exciting. Oh, so um, So, yeah, tell us... Tell us your life story. Oh, man. That's the short version. 
I mean, I can give you, like, a synopsis. Sure, um, let's go. I am a professional photographer uh, with two businesses. Uh, my starter business, what I started nine years ago, is a specialization in boudoir, portraiture, elopement, photography. Um, and then my second venture, I started with a friend, Lameen. We started this business for content creation and commercial photography <clears throat> and videography to help small businesses, especially during the pandemic, where they couldn't afford to do, like, hire these big teams. We were going to be those duo that would just kind of help everybody out at that point. Uh, yeah, like, where can where can they find you? Um, what's Or what's that uh, work with Nanine called? Like, so that one is The Collective Atelier. Uh, it is, the collective is just a collective of artists. We bring in a lot of our friend group to either help us on shoots with the florals, the set design, the products and everything from start to finish. We have a light tech, we have a florist, like I said, a set designer. We have an editor, we have a videographer, a photographer. We have the whole big thing. And it's this whole big production that we didn't, we've always known we wanted to do, but we just kind of like, oh, well, we don't have anything going on now that the pandemic is here. Why don't we just start a business? <laughs> Literally the beginning of March. <laughs> nice. Last March. Last March. Yeah. Um, oh, man. And for those of you who, if you're not a practicing artist, or if you are a practicing artist, you definitely know how hard it is to blend two completely different styles together. So what has that process been like for you? Oh, man. It was... <laughs> it wasn't... I wouldn't say it was a struggle. It was definitely a like reawakening and saying like okay we have two totally different styles we had to bring somebody in for creating our website we're like we couldn't agree on something we we're like we just need somebody to take all of our stuff and just put it together because we love each other's work and we're always like i want to show this one because you did really good on this one but no i want to show yours because you did really good here and we're just like oh my god we need somebody else to be a third person in this <laughs> So we did have some struggles. We ended up figuring out that having a third person was definitely the easiest solution for us to have that middle person and just decide for us nice. to be like, this is the best representation of this product versus like you guys both like going at each other and being like, <laughs> no, yours is better. Yours is better. <laughs> but it definitely, it worked out in the end. And we, I love Nanine, all of her work and video videography because I mean, I wanted to do videography and I love doing home videos, but nothing could ever compare to the commercial work that Nanine can do. And we've decided that she is the number one person <laughs> for that. And I'll just be like that person being like, okay, this is the vision. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Um, so that's so great to hear about your two businesses. Two. She's an amazing person. She's got two businesses. And she was doing this all while she was doing BA full time. That's incredible. I mean, yeah. So we'll drop the link to both of her websites in the bio of the podcast um, <laughs> episode. So make sure you check that out. Um, and we'll talk about her social media before we close. Yeah. Um, so obviously we met each other at school. Yes. So, but what was your degree in? So I got my BA in art history this last May. Uh, right before, <laughs> like, everything was shut down, didn't have a graduation, it was a whole big thing. <laughs> um, we went to Mexico that 
we went to it beforehand. We were there in December through New Year's. Yeah. But we thought we had the whole world against us at <laughs> that know. point. <laughs> we're like, this is great. It's like, we... Coronavirus right. what? <laughs> yeah. Think about, like, us, like, climbing pyramids and, like, being in the Zocalo right at midnight when New Year struck. Oh, and it was there's incredible. a ton of people. We come back and, like, the world is ending kind of thing. <laughs> Two months later. And we're like, oh, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> but I did finish my BA. Coincidentally enough, during that trip, I decided that I wanted to get my master's degree because of you <laughs> and your whole big plan to get like what your PSU for like 30. Uh, so it's, um, before, well, initially it was before 27 because there was a, a program that I was looking at in Arizona <clears throat> that was three years long. And so, I mean, I would have had it, I think I would have just turned 27, but my current program is. A minimum of five years, I think. And so that means I'll have it by, like, 28, I think. Yeah, and still before but, 30. Yeah, definitely still. before 30. I, for some reason, like, yeah, when I was in undergrad, I was like, I want to go to grad school. But I'm going to get the PhD before I'm 27. And then, But now it's 28, so, yeah. Like, I'm 27. I'm going to be 28 this year, and I'm just like, I, I want to go to grad school. Like, hello. <laughs> I mean, everybody's path is different, yeah. and it's definitely not a race. It's... Well, at that point, it was my last semester in my bachelor's program, and I was like, I don't know what I want to do after this. Yeah. Like, I had a successful career. I've started two businesses at this point, and Mexico really did kind of change my point of view of what I wanted to do for school because we visited all these archaeological historical sites, and I was like, I want to work with this. Like, I love this idea that you can preserve these sites for many years to come. And so that's what I'll be doing. I will be getting my master's degree in managing archaeological sites. Yeah, which is super, super exciting. And which is part of the reason why we are talking about Teotihuacan today. And of course, like another reason is that it has huge, huge cultural significance in Mexico. And of course, the development of subsequent cultures in Mesoamerica but also another reason to talk about it is because we've actually been there and it's definitely helpful when you can provide your own insights in describing archaeological sites, works of art, thing, anything like that. Um, because seeing it in person just, it changes everything. And I know I had talked about that a little bit in like one of my first episodes about the Colossal Cuadrilicue, but it really, it really does put things into perspective. And my God, climbing those pyramids, like, I mean, I knew it was going to be steep, right? Yeah. But I, I was not considering the fact that, like, it was, like, basically just straight up. Like, that's... Like, think nosebleeds of any, like, baseball stadium where you're like, just, like, feeling like you're going to, like, fall. Yeah, and, like, the, the steps themselves are quite narrow. Yeah. So if you miss, a like, a placement of your foot, like, you're, you're, gonna, you're gone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's, like, even See more... See you in the next life. Sorry, bye. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, like, it's even more remarkable because, like, if you think about the size of these people, because, like, over time, like, we humans as a whole, you started out pretty short in evolution, you know, you get taller and taller, oh, yeah. but, like, at this point in time, like, the average height wasn't that tall. I don't, not as our current average height. Like, I'm, I'm 5'8". Which is barely above the, the U.S. average at five seven. Why are you bringing my height back into this? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying five to get perspective. Foot. 
even. <laughs> There's no other numbers after that five. <laughs> I am a proud proclaimer of saying that I had to sit down and scoop down that. <laughs> I'm it like, was... hey, I got up and I'm getting back down. Yeah, it, I mean, I feel like I definitely wish that I had been on a stair climber thingy at the gym okay. before I had gone on this trip because whew, that was, I mean, it was I rough. It was beautiful, but it was rough. Fact. But mm-hmm. I was like, why didn't I do this beforehand? I decided to do it after the fact. <laughs> you learned. You learned. You're like, I'm going to take over archaeological sites. And I need now to know I how climb to, them I need to know how to climb these, <laughs> yeah. like, really steep stairs everywhere. Definitely. Um, but, yeah, if you have never been to Teotihuacan, it is, like, the, the site itself is massive. I mean, oh, yeah. um, the, the history of it is, it's just incredible. It, it's a massive it's like one of the greatest like cities that around that time was being built it yeah i guess it was yeah. the most technologically advanced at that point mm-hmm. it, it was and um so the rise and fall of teotihuacan like it began just before around 150 ce and the collapse happened around 650 ce so the first part of that is in the the later portions of the late formative period um so it was like some of it was like just before the common era and yeah. then um it didn't quite reach it reached the end of the classic period but not to be confused with the epi and late classic period which are um the late classic period in particular is when we see the aztec and yeah. maya empire as we understand them today with um the arrival of the Spanish before they fucked everything up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Teotihuacan uh, actually reached its peak during the classic period, and it was characterized by further developed state institutions, expanded interregional trade routes, and pursued different forms of political authority, ranging from divine kingship to corporate forms of government. And these all began at different times in different regions of Mexico. So not one region in Mexico is going to develop the same as the other, which is why we see so many different, um, or so many cultural differences, sorry. Um, But yeah, so like many other Mesoamerican societies, Teotihuacan was, um, you know, like it had slaves at the bottom of the social pyramid and it followed by the support of agriculture and it basically worked its way up until you had one primary ruler. Um, So it was, it was, I think akin to like a few what we would think of as a feudal society right so yeah is that i would say like if you're thinking like feudal japan like this would be like feudal mexico yeah for sure for sure um but at the height of its reign like marissa said teotihuacan was like this sort of epicenter for mesoamerican people and it because of that it was a cosmopolitan city and there were different regional distinctions um there were sections of the city that were geared towards people from Oaxaca and primarily composed of Zapotec origin, whereas, like, the Eastern Ward had strong connections to lowland Veracruz and Mexico, or, and, and the Maya, sorry. It was a very famous like, trade center, like, a trading yeah. center, so it was one of the biggest in Mexico at that time as well. Definitely, and part of the reason why we know so much about this is because, well, of course, the objects that were left behind, either in burial sites or at the fall of the city, and then also um, scientific analyses of the dead. So part of this, um, anthropologists and scientists, they've conducted different types of tests on the remains. I remember reading one, it was about like the teeth. 
and um, they were able to do the chemical composi- composition of the teeth and some other fragments of the, the bone structure of the human. And they were actually able to track like the migration pattern of the person based on the minerals that were in the region. So they could definitely, that was part yeah, of how yeah, they could yeah. tell. It was I'm really so excited neat. to learn all this. <laughs> yeah. um, and you're going to get to do all this stuff. I know. I try not to um, <laughs> but weirdly enough, or not weirdly, I should say, um, the fall of the city was actually intentional and it met its end around the close of the sixth century. And it was through deliberate destruction of palaces and the associated elite art. All of the major palaces were burned to the ground, along with temples and, of course, art. It is thought that the stress of the physical environment from the deconstruction of surrounding forests for burning lime, which was part of the plaster itself, and then also in many Mesoamerican cultures, lime was used in um, rituals like we had talked about in the Popero. Lime was part of the, like... Yeah, like the snuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, but the city actually continued, oh, sorry, <laughs> let me back up. Part of the, another part of the fall was coupled with political and economic factors. So, of course, you know, powers change over time and ultimately empires fall, regardless of where you're at in the world. Yeah. And um, people actually continued to live in the city for another two centuries. And it was mainly in the Avenue of the Dead, which is where a lot of the, Houses, you can actually see, yeah. like, the, the base. Which, if you don't know what the Avenue of the Dead is, it's... So, how Teo is basically laid out is there's this big, long avenue, this street that goes down the middle of it. And at the... I believe it's... If you're looking straight at the Pyramid of the Sun, that's where it goes down, right? The, um, or is that the moon? I think... Okay, so there's the Temple of the Feathered oh. Serpent. We have different resources. I know. right here. <laughs> Um, so it's kind of, it's constructed on the cardinal points. Um, and the, the Avenue of the Dead is kind of like the access for the entire city itself. Okay, so three great pyramids define the center, the sun and moon in the north, and the pyramid of the feathered serpent in the south. And they're all connected through the street of the dead, or Avenue of the Dead, sorry. The sun and moon have bases covering several acres with summits from 200 feet to the Pyramid of the Sun and 140 feet to the Pyramid of the Moon. We climbed the Pyramid of the Moon. Yes. Um, The Feathered Serpent is smaller, but it has the most elaborate sculptural design and serves as the center of the Ciudadela. And the Sun and Serpent are the only ones that we know of right now that contain human-made tunnels where elaborate underground rituals were held. And I'm going to pass... at that point, it was still, like, under a dig at the point, so nobody was climbing that one, right? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I know, like, the official reconstruction happened under Manuel Gamio, yes. but... Or the main one. The, the way that we can see Teotihuacan yeah. as we know it today. Um, yes. That was under Gamio's direction, so we did talk about the the sun. So okay, so the sun is the largest of the three. The pyramid of the sun and the pyramid of the moon are actually very similar in styles, by because of the way that they were made, compared to the the pyramid of feathered serpents. I will say, climbing the pyramid of the moon, the pyramid of the moon was not necessarily the one that they did the what is it the sacrifices on it was the pyramid of the sun correct yeah. yeah no they they did sacrifices on the moon i believe but the the burial sites were in 
or the ones that we know of at the moment were in the Feathered Serpent and Pyramid of the Sun. And those ones had the, like, the, you could actually, like, walk in them. Like, obviously, like, not the average, like, yeah. peasant couldn't walk in, but... Not like you, before. Hmm? Not like before, when all of the civilians were doing the excavations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... But, no, like, the those two, they have, like, a, these elaborate, like, tunnel systems underneath and, like, kind of, like, tricks and turns. But, ultimately, at the center, there's, like, a sacrificial area for the elite and yeah. the ruling class and the priests. Which, in some cultures, you know, this is the one and the same, but... Oh, I know, I know why I was thinking that there was a sacrifice. <laughs> they buried the three males... At the summit of the Pyramid of the Moon. Oh, okay. With all of, like, the jade, the masks, and objects that they found. Um, it's It was, like, noted that these individuals are probably originally from the Maya Highlands. Versus directly coming from Teo. I finally found the, the height of the Pyramid of... Did you have to look it up? <laughs> I did. Because, like, I, he didn't put it in here. In the book. Um, so, the... Height is 140 feet or 43 meters, and um, the Pyramid of the Sun is 213 feet. Um, I don't. It doesn't have the feathered serpent. Oh well, but the feathered serpent is the smallest of the three. So if yeah. that if that helps at all, and it was I think it was built last. Yes. Yes. It um, was the sun, then the moon. Like, they got smaller as they went on. Yeah, and they're all in the architectural style of Talud Tablero. <laughs> I fucked that up. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Talud Tablero. Yeah, thanks. Talud Tablero. <laughs> yeah. <I'm... laughs> My Mexican is not <laughs> coming <laughs> out yet. <laughs> I've been out of Mexico too long. I mean, let's be real. While you're in Mexico, you have, like, a beer or two, and your Spanish is actually pretty good. <laughs> I always tell people that uh, I always speak roofing Spanish, not actual Spanish, because I worked at a roofing company for a while. <laughs> and all I could understand was when people would talk about their roofs in Spanish. <laughs> and maybe, like, don't be a stand up and do the thing. Anyway, back to the So Marissa had mentioned that, um, some of the sacrifices they were are believed to have been of Maya origin, and part of this is because many human sacrifices throughout Mesoamerica, um, they were actually slaves or or um, you know people that they had captured through war, battles, things like that. Um, and then every now and then, I think they did have like people of the city, but it was like in at that point it was an honor to be sacrificed so it depended on the and they were buried itself. those ones were buried inside the temples not at the summits or anything like that yeah i, I believe so and if somebody out there like wants to correct us because they are like no that's wrong by all means send us send me an email at or not at artwatchpodcast at gmail.com or you can send a message at at, at artwatchpodcast yeah you can dm me on instagram and twitter is it called dms on twitter Direct message. It's a DM. Well, I don't know, because, like, on Facebook, they're like, private message or messenger. I don't know. I mean, it is a direct message to someone. <laughs> Anyways. Yes, but, and, and some of the objects themselves that were found um, around these sacrificial humans were from other cultures. They would stretch far back as um, the Olmec. They were kind of sought after. They were, like, for many, like, 
um, younger, and by younger I mean, like, more recent <laughs> yeah. um, ancient civilizations in Mesoamerica, they were kind of believed to, like, the gods. That, there's, that's not the right word, but that's the sort of the concept that it was. They were, like, their seniors, basically. Yeah, like, they, the great ancestors. Like, they yes. were they were the, the chosen ones. Um, yes. Yeah, so, like, they, each, each following civilization looked up to the last. And then once you get to um, the Aztec, at a certain point, like, there was this constant, like, look back to Teotihuacan, and then people at Teotihuacan looked back to Tula, and then people at Tula looked back to the Olmec. Um, so it's this constant tradition of looking yeah. back and, like... Which both... is why a lot of people get them confused. Right, because, because there's so many... so many little aspects to each culture that is, like, brought over. Like, saying, like, oh, I'm gonna give this homage to our ancestors, and it kind of gets brought back in. So you can see some of those things going on moving forward. Oh, yeah. That's definitely part of it. But the other part is looting. Um, <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> like with that any empirical... Right say it, but you did. That's fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so there was, there was actually quite a bit of looting, um, which is, again, part of the reason why you also see so many um, objects from other cultures at Teotihuacan. But then if you go to Tenochtitlan, which is like the center of Mexico City or like the capital of the Aztec, you'll see like... Uh, like pieces of murals from Teotihuacan but then you'll also see like um they're like these benches that were put in like the soldier area of of Tenochtitlan but they're from Tula or the Toltec so like there's actually like a lot of different places called Tula and that's a whole nother conversation Mm -hmm. but um so yeah like there's this constant like appropriating slash stealing from other cultures and Teotihuacan had the same thing and then for certain rituals, um, like that you'll see at the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpents, um, the bodies were actually ornately decorated. They had, like, these beautiful, like, necklaces. I don't know if that's what they would call them. Um, and then, like, there's different pectorals. Like, yeah. I think some had, like, different types of headdresses. Yeah. And then there's just so many other, like, ornate objects throughout. And those objects themselves, they're either made by Teotihuacan themselves or they're pulled from other cultures. And if you've ever been to the Museo Nacional de Antropología in Mexico City, um, they actually have this fantastic recreation of that site. So they have the facade of the Feathered Serpent Pyramid, and they also have on the inside, um, I believe it's a recreation. I don't know, because like in a lot of them, uh, in a lot of the museums, whether it's the Museo Templo Mayor or um, like in this instance, um, the m yeah. Where they actually take the burial site, like the all of the objects, and they'll recreate it for you. So I don't remember if the, if the one of the feathered serpents was the actual object or was the actual. Um... I feel like it wasn't just because of how many people were like, there was no like sign that said like. Oh, that's true, and there wasn't like... glass covering it, and like a lot of the. Yeah the actual, um, like, recreations, they were covered in glass. Like, you'll see that at, at Museo Templo Mayor. And then yeah. I know that also at the MNA there are, like, recreations of other, like, from the Olmec, like, burial sites from the Olmec and burial sites from other Mesoamerican civilizations. And they don't have, like, a glass covering. So I think those, I think you're right, I think it might be a recreation. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so... Since we're talking about recreations of the excavation, it's got a lot of shuns in there. Uh, (laughs) 
So let's talk about the excavations and what we found. Like, we talked a little bit about what we found at the burial sites, but maybe the history of excavation will kind of help you understand how the, how... The history of these is, like, just basically, like, being preserved and, like, how it's transported, really. Yeah, and and how this has helped, or, I say helped, but that's the only word I can think of, how it helped form Mexican national identity in the 20th century. Um, so Marissa, take it away. <laughs> okay, so the original history of this, the excavation site of Teo is basically, like, most of this, like how Tori had said earlier, like, it, people still lived in it. There was, it was really never abandoned throughout the years. It was just different people and squatters and, like, families would live during, in the avenue and just kind of keep it going without really having it labeled as the Green City, basically. Uh, during the excavations when they started loosely like within the beginning or late 17th century um, civilians were excavating it like they were wanting to get all the jewels all the things out of it because obviously there were something they didn't know um, that they might be disrupting (laughs) a lot of different like cultural like beliefs or anything like that it was just like this is our home we're gonna see what's here kind of thing yeah and i think also to that point you have oh my god my allergies um you have the spanish um they'll take the objects like they like i had talked about and with the quatlicue statue they'll take them study them and then bury them again yes because they don't want the indigenous people to have access to their culture because it goes against their act of colonization um but yeah (laughs) and also these things are buried for a reason like they it wasn't just like there's a new power, like a power. It wasn't like a power struggle. It was saying like, okay, this time is over. Bearing everything, we're not destroying it. It's just it's the foundation is still there, which is what I really like. Like saying like, oh, Kualiki was here. We're gonna study this real quick. Put it back because it's still the foundation of this place. Like, Wait, do you mean like the the Spanish? Yeah. Oh no, I, I'm gonna completely disagree with you on that. Really? No. Yeah, because like. Part of the reason why they did that is because they were having struggle, like, converting so many indigenous people to Christianity, and they were having to, like, um, basically take some aspects of Mesoamerican culture, like the Oh, the I'm not talking blood. about, like, when they first started. I mean, like, when they first started studying them. No, even then. Like, oh, still? <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't, they didn't want um, indigenous people to have access to it because oh. it... If they were afraid that if they had access to their actual cultural okay. roots, then they would continue to be, quote, savages, which, fuck them, right? Um, <laughs> Rude. Right. So, so yeah, like, if, if it was the Spanish that was reburying it, then it, it was definitely tied to conversion efforts. And gotcha. so the yeah, problem yeah. of assimila- assimilation, as we get into the... Um, 19th and 20th centuries so which I'll talk I'll go a little bit more in depth than that in a second but there's there's of course the power structural structure power struggle oh my god I can't fucking talk (laughs) take two (laughs) so Marissa why don't you tell us about excavations all right so as Tori said earlier the site was never really abandoned throughout time families still lived there there were squatters it never really died as a city it was just kind of like i wouldn't say repurposed i would just say like redefined as a city it was excavated by 
the civilians there in the beginning in the beginning the late 17th century still continue today up until 1897 the civilians were excavating the pyramids until the mexican government took over these excavations and started making them more historically accurate and trying to not disrupt (laughs) (laughs) were you able to find like if any of those civilians like if there was any like photographs or if there was any sort of credit given to them they were given some compensation for like getting the materials i would say um getting the materials (laughs) excavating the materials quote unquote yeah (laughs) loosely (laughs) they were given some compensation uh for getting the materials (laughs) a looting (laughs) um but it there was never really like any documentation that i found in like my 30 minute search Because I just learned that we were doing this. I mean, that makes sense because, like, archaeologists or, like, people who were were trained in this type of work, they know to keep logs. And so if you're, yeah. if you're looting, regardless of what cultural background you come from, you're not going to, like, nine times out of ten, you're probably not going to keep track of it. And you're just gonna be like, no. hey, this is cool. I like that. I'm going to take that. Yeah. Um, and you have to keep in mind, like, most of these civilians, they're squatters. Like, they're just trying to, like keep food on their tables yeah and also like thinking like not just at this site but in other sites you have westerners like coming in well the problematic term western but that's uh, another conversation again so many other conversations anyway but um so you have um explorers coming in and they're like i'm gonna take that that seems like it's of cultural significance and that sounds cool so that's mine now. And, yeah. like, there weren't any regulations for it. Um, I mean, like, in uh, Colombia, like, the gold, like, you couldn't... I think it was, like, in the 70s before it was finally illegal to actually take those objects, regardless yeah. of who you were from. Like, after that law was put in place, it was now, like, any gold objects were part of the the people. Like, it was... It belonged yeah. to the people, so it belonged to... Well, the government, like, for... Safekeeping. I mean, yeah. it, you know. I mean, it's basically that whole mentality, like, hey, this is my home. I'm gonna take what's in my home and try and keep food on my table. Yeah. Which during that time is was a normal thought. After the government took over, so many things changed. The Pyramid of the Sun was restored in 1910 for the Mexican War of Independence, mm-hmm. which I really want to see like differences between that restoration and what they're doing now, but there's not much on it right now. Yeah, I mean, I know that um, the way that you can, that, that we now can tell that there were certain parts that were restored is they put, like, these metal rods. Yeah. So you know, like, what layers of the pyramid um, were fixed. And this is at, in all, or I don't want to say all, just in case it's not, but in most archaeological sites in Mexico, you have these. And this was, like, the way that they were able to to know what was restored and what wasn't and, like, what was original versus, you know, what they were fixing. Um, but yeah. I think the most interesting kind of idea that I want to learn from that is really, as somebody who's now going to be an archaeological nerd, uh, is how they would change that. Like, would the processes be different for that restoration in 1910 to now? Would they consider that still a restoration or, like, almost like they're, they're destroying the history of it because they are putting metal rods in it so is it still technically that 
part of the pyramid, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, just to, to speak to that just a little bit, um, in one of the courses I took at UH, we'd worked with conservators. And, you know, like, of course, there's the the problem of should we keep it in its original state like the artist intended or maybe didn't intend um, or should we restore it to the way it would have been um and i think it's definitely like a case by case i think in, in this instance um restoring it to as close as we could have gotten it yeah. not only is it going to to help scholarship but i i think it's really important because of how tied it is to to Mexican history and Mexican culture and, and, you know, I think at that point, like, as I'm just sitting here thinking about it, like, if they were to completely paint it the way that it was painted originally, super colorful, because they're not the way they look when they were first made. They were bright colors. Amazing, amazing photos are made from that. Would they still technically, like, be considered part of that Mexican culture at that point? Or would they... Would the deterioration of that color be more important to them? I think at that point, like, they wouldn't... You wouldn't restore, like, the paint. But I think you would instor, restore the the structure of yeah. it. Because we have examples of what the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpents would look like. Yeah. Just like we have examples of what Greek and Roman sculptures would look like when they were fully painted. So I, I think that there is a line. Granted, I'm not a conservator by any means. <laughs> so I don't want to, like... Speak I'll for somebody in that profession. PhD. <laughs> what? what? I'll let you know when I finish my PhD. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's um, the ethical way to do this? What's the ethical? Yeah. No, I think that, like, I mean, at a certain point, you do have to draw a line. Yeah. Because just, like, they're not going to go and, and repaint the the sunstone, you know? Yeah. Or Quatlique, for that matter. Like, they're not going to go and repaint her. But... Uh, actually, on the, um, is it, was it Tlaloc, like, with me? At the Tenochtitlan? Or, not, Temple Mayor, right? Mm. The, <laughs> you didn't see the face of me. <laughs> I, just... I always think Quatlique, like. No, no, Quatlique is, is the. Yeah, it's yeah, the one, yeah. The Colossal. But, Tlalicuitli, yes. I, I think I... it's, she's like laying down, not Koyoshauki, but. Oh, okay. Because she's at, you There's actually so can names. see. <laughs> so many deities uh, <laughs> we really are i'm thinking of the one that you did oh like, um, no no um but the one because i i did a brief presentation of it yeah it's like it's hey not, why don't you do this i'm like okay it was it wasn't at temple mayor it was at um it was in the same room as the sunstone no temple mayor like the when you walked in mm-hmm. there's like there was a female deity mm-hmm. ferocious and she she had like the polychrome on her. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not like weirdly, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. okay, I'm not crazy. I'm okay. so sorry. But yeah, so like that, that's an example of like, um, of objects that, that still have the color and it's not yeah. in every single uh, piece, but we have an idea and I mean like they'll go in and they'll do like small tests of certain parts and like what pigments would have been there and they do have a recreation of like what it would have looked like just like yeah. they have a recreation of the sunstone of what it would have looked like when it was yeah. fully painted oh, that red and yellow <laughs> yes which is interesting because like you know i i had this question with the like quickly and i guess it will fall over into the sunstone is i wonder how much of like human blood is there like residue is still there because um these were used to feed the gods, like sacrifice. Like I don't, yeah. I don't want to like 
I know we're talking a lot about sacrifice. That's obviously not the core of these civilizations, but the, the specific aspects that we're talking about, they're related to that because it's related to the religion. Um, so I'm not trying to, like, primitivize this culture in any means because I absolutely love it, but... Um, I feel like it is a very important aspect of right. understanding, for sure. And, I mean, I think the relation to... The religion is actually quite beautiful. I mean, the the gods themselves, they cut open... Uh, he sacrificed himself and used his blood to create the universe, which was why you had so much human sacrifice. It was, like, replicating what the gods did for the people. Yeah. And so it was their way of honoring, and it was their way of, like you know, feeding the gods and, like, keeping up yeah. this this tradition, really. And it's, it was like an homage to the gods. Yeah, basically. and, like, I mean, we might look at it as violent now, but... It, I mean, it is violent, but... Um, I mean... Yeah. yeah, but, I mean, it was... They would sacrifice animals just as much as they would sacrifice yeah. people. So, like, I mean, there were individuals... They're sacrificing every religion. It's just yeah. a matter of how much it's portrayed, I believe. And I definitely think that's a problem of the way that we approach history. Yeah. Because history is... Uh, well, the way that we have been taught history, anyway, I don't yeah. want to speak for other countries, but it's definitely, we're going to, if they're not Greco-Roman, you're hey, savages. Let me just focus on this really weird fact about this entire religion and this entire, like, society and culture and just broadcast it. Yeah, and that's that's definitely what a lot of pop culture yeah. has done with Mesoamerica, and actually really any non-Greco-Roman. Yeah. Okay, so I do think that Western knowledge of <laughs> these communities is just so heavily impacted by the religions that were started in these cultures, and the way that they view it today is just so crazy, because they basically just highlighted this one weird area mm-hmm. of this culture and was like, hey, they're doing some weird crap over there. Oh, I'm sorry. They're doing some weird shit over there. And let me just point that out for you so that way you don't go over there. Yeah, and, like, it's used to, like, demonize these people. And, I mean, I don't know. Okay, this is not, like, a a jab at Christianity itself. More a jab at the Spanish colonizers. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like, in Catholicism, you are literally eating the blood and body of Christ. There's there's really not much of a difference. I mean, it's yeah. just they they did this as a way to shift the power. And yeah. that's really all it was. And honestly, like, I grew up going to church every Sunday. And I always thought that that aspect was so weird that we would, like, settle on that whole, like, idea of, like, oh, the body and blood of Christ. And then, like, but they're doing the exact same thing over there. Why is it weird for them to do it yeah. but not us? yeah. Definitely. And, like, I know this is getting off on, like, a a small tangent, but in, like, colonial Mexico, or, like, colonial New Spain. um, (laughs) I've never heard it that way before. (laughs) Well, New Spain, yeah. They would call it, they called it New Spain. But um, part of the reason, so actually, I don't know if this is, like, an urban legend, well, a legend, not urban, because I don't know if it would be classified as urban legend by this point. Anyway, um, the creation of the piñata actually was from... Um, what they would do, they would, the way that they would convert indigenous people is that they would create the devil, right? As, like, in the shape of, like, okay. like a pinata, right? And then they would train them to, Don't like... tell me this. <laughs> no, let me finish. Um, and if, if this is totally wrong, somebody please correct me and I will, I'm so like, curious now. Okay, but basically, they would teach the indigenous people to beat, you know, the devil, and then they would get, like, I think it was, like, a candy or a coin, it might have been a gold coin, and then eventually it switched to a candy. And that is like, you, you're you good. You're a good Catholic when oh you beat God. the devil out. And so 
part of it, they were like, okay, well, this is not my words, this is paraphrasing for the colonizers, um, (laughs) these savages need to, you know, like, we'll connect it to their religion, let's just be violent, and that that was the thing, and, like, I mean, it was totally wrong, totally off base, but it was how they did it. I mean, this is also how, like, Catholic, or Catholics, Catholicism, Christianity, they converted pagans in Europe, they, that's why you have, like, Easter around the spring equinox, solstice. Yeah, I mean, most Christian holidays are holidays. Yeah, and that's how they did it. And this is the same thing that they did in Mexico and in other parts of Latin America. Um, It's like we all have the same idea. We're just doing it differently. Yeah, and so yeah, but that, so basically like, I, we a long tangent to say, while we are talking about sacrifice, we understand that this is not the main takeaway from any Mesoamerican culture, but the, where we are talking about it because it is important to the culture itself. Um, and especially since these pyramids, they had sacrifices. And so, like, it's part of the site itself. Yeah. yeah. So we're not, we, we're not demonizing, I hope. No, not we just want like to learn, like, the entire truth about these sites. We're not trying to, like, basically, like, separate them in a certain way. No. We don't want to just focus in on this one area but it is probably the most focused area at this point because that's what everybody just kind of goes towards yeah and and i mean scholarship continually develops and part of the reason why it's so hard for scholarship of any latin american culture to move forward is because we don't know so much about the the way of life because all of it was destroyed and part of it was it's not all to do with like spanish destroying it i mean that was a big part yeah but these civilizations they would ultimately destroy other it was like self-destruction cultures. as well yeah and so like i mean with the aztec they would actually destroy a lot of previous civilizations or other civilizations that they conquered because you're part of us now so yeah. that's that's what that was i mean um so part of the, our um, lack of understanding is from that but a main part of it or the majority of it is from the spanish destroying it and yeah. burning all of the books i mean that again like they mesoamerican cultures burn their own stuff just like we saw with with Teotihuacan, where they destroyed yeah. their own city. That but... could be so much more history that we learn if these the, the self-destructive and also outside-destructive manners of other cultures didn't exist. But we won't know that until we continually excavate these, like, these sites and get more information from them. But it is also still fairly new. Like, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, it hadn't started for this site specifically until like late 1800s yeah and like when the main the main excavations and and reconstructions of the site were under Gamio, like he used all of this to like weirdly construct for handle patria which is like this basis on the mestizaje which we've talked about in other episodes but i mean even then like it's it's really biased how he looked at these cultures and how mm-hmm. subsequent like anthropologists scholars um for example, Jose Vasconcelos, like how he looked yeah. at them, super, super biased, super flawed. Most times, ninety nine percent of the time, I want to say very problematic. But I mean, really, That's the only way we're gonna know what happened is if somebody happens to create a time machine and we can go back and view it ourselves. I would um, love that. Oh, man, I will volunteer too. for that. Me too, honestly. Although I... butterfly effect. <laughs> <laughs> Marty McFly. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, but yeah, so like. 
these excavations were really used to help form national identity and um Gamio he he like I said he uses for Fajardo Patria and it was like pushed in the school system at the time and then just like Vasconcelos's um La Raza Cosmica was pushed in education because I mean he was the minister of education yeah um so I mean it's really weird how tied it is like yeah. not to the government but also like how they use this to this is like what they would actually call it awaken the sleeping Indian like you, we know how important you are, yeah. but you don't know how important you are. You don't know how important you are to Mexican yeah. history and culture. And if only you would wake up from your, like, slumber, or in many cases, they would call it lazy, drunkenness, you know? Like, yeah. they, like while the Mexican government, and, like, they did, like, you know, kind of glamorize and glorify Mesoamerican cultures, they demonized modern indigenous people. I mean, it happened throughout Latin America. We st- like in the United States, it still happens to um, living indigenous people. Yeah, and I mean, it's a problem that you and hopefully I can't answer. Hopefully, will get reser- <laughs> resolved. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, so yeah, like there's, it's really complex, and I know like we talked about an entire site mega quick. <laughs> yeah, <it's- laughs> because. So much information. Yeah, yeah. we'll have to do, like, an episode where we talk specifically about the pyramids, and that'll probably be a two-parter. Yeah. Or we can do three parts, honestly, because there's three main pyramids. Yeah. Yeah. And give each pyramid its its justice, because, I mean, there's so much to learn, and, um, I mean, like... Talk about what they found underneath as well. Yeah, I mean, we we barely scratched the surface. (laughs) So, as we're kind of rounding this out, um, what can we learn from this site and what is what is our main takeaway i would say during this trip which i always advise students to always go and study your pods because you always learn so much more than just sitting in a classroom i learned a lot about the historical sites versus the community which is one of the main reasons why i absolutely fell in love with archaeological sites and like wanting to work in them and anything to do with any of that um it's important to preserve and maintain these historical sites and learn as much as we can from them as well as maintaining a sense of community because you don't want to say during this preservation and this excavation and all of the data gathering of these sites you don't want to disturb the community that's already there you want to work in tandem with these communities you want to preserve it but also keep it safe while yeah, you're preserving it. Definitely. And I feel like that was a major sense of like awakening for myself to be like, oh, I'm not just visiting these sites, I'm visiting this like whole cultural place. Place where like my grandmother grew up in Mexico and I was like, half of these things I didn't even know. The whole like everything with Teo, everything with Tula and just Mexico City in general, I didn't know a lot of the things that happened. And I feel like that's a really weak point in historical teachings is they like what you said earlier is like bringing that self sense of self-awareness back into the community is very important and i think that helping these historical sites and the community will just basically make everything else flourish at that point you'll start to learn more about the cultures maybe even combine a lot of these like ideas and figure out where they're like lining up is going to be really important. Yeah, I like that. And and just for clarification, uh you mean US education, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like 
um, the education is quite different in Mexico, like, because obviously, like, they're teaching a whole different history, but... Yeah, no, I, I can only speak on U.S. Yeah. education <laughs> until, like, <laughs> September, that's the only education yeah. that I got. <laughs> um, I guess for me, like, the main takeaway is, like, if, if I was presenting this to students, I would want them to understand that Teotihuacan was a thriving, like, cosmopolitan city. It was huge. Yeah. I mean, there people were living there like it was it was more than just the sacrifices right it was it was a way of life it It was was an entire culture it was a home for families it was the birth of a lot of technological advances for this time one of those being the three-footed um pot which we didn't talk about really see there's so much you can pull away from this like we need to like you could have like probably a whole like semester just, on Teo. just for Teo. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so like I mean, really understanding that this was it was kind of like a center for a lot of Mesoamerican people and there was tons of trade happening. There was tons of I mean, of course, like you have the problems of like slavery and, and things like that, but ultimately this this city, it's it's more than just the what you the, learn and you like Yeah. In, the U.S. education system. Or even in, like, pop culture. I mean, yeah. like, Road to El Dorado, looking at you. <laughs> Ooh, yikes. I didn't even think about that. Oh, my God. Like, we, I watched it recently, and I was like, I wonder why I didn't like this movie as a kid. <laughs> I mean, I liked it, but now I want to go back and rewatch we'll it. We'll do it. We can do an episode on that, too. That would be really fun. Oh, um, but, yeah, like, I mean, it's a... It's a very, Teotihuacan was a sophisticated civilization. It wasn't, like, the problematic savage, you know, like, what, yeah. you know, Spanish colonization and you, you is You also have to put, keep in mind, like, these aren't, like, quote-unquote primitive lifestyles. No, they're they're intricate, they're intense, yeah. and they're actually very beautiful. Like, yeah. I mean, and I, I get frustrated with, like, older scholarship where they only focus on, like, the othering of, of these cultures rather than, like, the symbolic meaning, you know? And, of course, like Marissa said, for me, like, visiting the sites was absolutely, like, life-changing, really, and, like, it really... It really was a life-changing trip. It it was, I mean, and it definitely influenced my thesis, because, um, I I don't know if we talked about it or not, but in our notes, there's... (laughs) A lot of misconceptions between Aztec and Mayan, and, yes. like, they would all kind of, like, jumble them together, even though, like, in the 20th century and, like, in the late ni- 19th century, they knew that there was a distinction. Yes. They knew. Like, I mean, it the wasn't Mayan a sophisticated... The Mayan calendar is not... The Mayan calendar is not the sun <laughs> No. <laughs> there are two different things. It There's so much that you can learn by just being able to differentiate the different... Yeah cultures and I think that that's something that's not expressed enough in like teachings and like when you're teaching this whole site as a whole it's like in a classroom I mean it's so much harder I mean just being there like you you actually see the differences and we had the privilege of going to three different ancient sites I mean it was incredible and like while there are like similarities you can see the distinct differences and and I mean, Teotihuacan was fantastic. Of each one is just so crazy different. Yes, definitely. Again, we're getting we're getting off topic again, um, <laughs> which is fine. It's there's a lot to talk about, but I think that you definitely will need like a whole series on just this yeah, one like, subject. You could do an entire like semester long class on any one of these sites. 
and you still probably we wouldn't whole semester long class on yes. <laughs> well, it was a winter mini. Yeah. We had to we basically learned the history of Mesoamerica. Like crash course. I mean, like obviously very well done because our, our professor, like I I can't say enough good about him. Like yes. he directed two of my my research projects, thesis. What's the plural of thesis? Theses? Theses. That's how I so think. weird. I don't know. I feel like I should know this. But um Tell us in the DMs what the plural yes, is. What is the that? plural of thesis? Um but no, and like I mean a wonderful professor. I mean, he has always in all of the classes that I've taken with him you know, focused on the importance of looking at the object and what is the object telling you and and how does this differ from what scholarship has written, whether that's, yeah. in this case, anthropological scholarship and in also art historical scholarship. Yeah. But and I will say, like, this was the first art history course that I took with Kutz, and it definitely, like, like I said before, it was a life-changing experience, even though it was a very, like, intensive class. Mm-hmm. Being on site and learning these things was just, it felt so different. It, he's a great professor. He knows how to explain these things anthropologically, art historically, and just like how it can relate to you mm-hmm. in like a normal life sense. And I think that that's really important to learn. Definitely. And I mean, there's some things like he showed us at Tula and also at Teo was how to find pottery fragments and obsidian fragments oh yeah i remember but But, i mean you can't take those no you can't you can't take them part of the being able to like as like i'm like gonna be like an archaeological major (laughs) i'm just gonna be like oh my god i know how to do this now like i know what to look for (laughs) yeah i mean so like there's so much like that you can take away from being on site if if possible i mean obviously not everybody can do that which is why we're trying to talk about Teotihuacan together because like we went there together and it was like we've said so many times it was a life-changing experience um yeah but I mean I think for both of us part of that life-changingness is because our ancestry goes to Mexico yeah you know and and I mean yeah I don't know it's it's incredible and it's so nice to learn about your history in a scholarly type of work setting yeah, where you can really ask those questions and the people that you're asking those questions might actually have an answer to. Absolutely. And with a professor that's not like, you know, perpetuating problems within scholarship, exactly. that's actually challenging them. And yeah, no, I mean, it was an incredible class and it's also turning into an ad for UH. So if they get students, <laughs> high five to us. <laughs> oh, that was horrible. No, I didn't do high five because it was actually going to, it was probably going to mess up the mic, but oh, okay. <laughs> There we go. There we go. Um, But, yeah, no, like, if you can, see the objects in person. If not, like, you know, there's multimedia that you can look at. This podcast being one of them. Yes. uh, Which you're listening, so thank you. And, yeah, so I guess as we're officially coming to a close, instead of just reminiscing about our fun times in Mexico. Where we ate, like, crickets and octopus. So where can you learn more about Teotihuacan? We got most of our information from the textbook that we used, or rather it's just a survey book, of Mexico from the Olmecs to the Aztecs, written by Michael Coe, Javier Urcid, and Rex Kuntz, our professor at UH. And um, like we said, he's fantastic and a great professor. He, he directed my master's thesis and my undergrad thesis. Can't say enough good about Dr. Kuntz. It should be noted that the book that we used was the 8th edition. Oh, yes. Uh, there was a line in there that... Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, I was kind of upset that I had to buy the newest edition of the book. 
And when I finally got it, I realized it was because, oh, there's a third author now. And there was, like, actually, like, a completely new chapter and tons of new sections. But in the, I think it was, it was probably the seventh edition. Sixth or seventh. I don't remember which one I have before. But there's a line that it's talking about, like, the sacrifices. And it was, like, they would cut open his chest and pull out the sacrifices, still beating a heart. And I was, like... That is a beautiful line in a textbook. Like, mm-hmm. just the, I mean, and the, the writing itself is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's and like, it's, Coons, why would you take this out? It, I know. You deprived <laughs> such a good me line. from this. <laughs> it was such a good line. And, um, I mean, maybe it might have been taken out because, like. It, it focuses on a little bit more than just the sacrifices, which I will say. Um, there's a lot more history. Oh, yeah. These focus on way more than just the sacrifices. Um, but again, since the pyramids themselves, they had offerings and burial sites. Like, that's why we did talk about it. I mean, he talks, well, he, they talk about all of the different cultures. Again, from the Olmecs to the Aztecs. The Maya don't really get noted in here, but that's because, um, their region is in the Yucatan and mainly in, like, Central America. But, um... If you want to learn more about Teotihuacan, you can also look at the Ina website through Mexico. Um, you can read Gamios for Patria, but understand that it's a very biased primary source related to his findings at Teotihuacan. And there are also, if you have access, so many studies on the archaeological site and also the objects that come out of it through yeah. JSTOR. Um, you can also check your university library. Um, you might just want to look up Mesoamerica because, I don't know, we had an arts library, but we also had, like, a main library. Yeah. And depending on the way the book itself is classified, you could find anthropology studies in the main library, whereas, like, we only found, like, specific art-related studies and catalogs in the arts library. So check check your university yeah. library. Also, don't be afraid to check your, the special collections in your school. Oh, yes. Special collections are fantastic. They will probably have way more access to a lot of these things than you would think. Yeah, and, like, UH actually has, like, a collection of pre-Columbian objects. There like, you go. And they're yeah. on, some of them are actually on view at the Houston Museum of Natural Science. And um, I know a lot of universities, they have their own private collections of certain things, whether it's, like, UH also has illuminating manuscripts. I know that um, Tulane in New Orleans, they have a fantastic collection of Latin American objects um, because of the Stone Center. Yeah. So, like, check your university. You, you never know what they have, and yeah. librarians are fantastic, and they want to help you with yeah. your research or just your general interest. Um, you can also look at some great scholars that study Mesoamerica, like, we we talked about Michael Coe, um, he's great, he recently passed away, though, which is super sad, because fantastic scholar that really changed the direction of, of, um, Mesoamerican study, yeah. and, um, you can also, again, Javier Seed, Linda Shield, she's amazing, um, her books are fantastic, um, I wish I could remember the book that I used in my undergrad thesis, but it's, I don't know. I don't want to say it because I'm probably going to get it wrong. Elizabeth Boone, she's at Tulane. She's fantastic. Um, Carl, I don't know how to say his last name. Is it Tab or Taube? Because, like, he... I don't know. I think it's... I, I, I think it's more of one of those, like, whatever you grow up learning is the one that you, you say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would say Tab. Um, but he's at UC Riverside, I think. And then um, there are tons and tons of other scholars just... Just look him up. And I know, I think his name is Stephen Houston. It's spelled Houston, but it's pronounced Houston. I think that's Very his first name. Very New York of him. Very New York of him, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> I don't actually know if he's from New York, but... Well, um, I mean, New York's you know, Street. That, that is true. Um, but he has some really great uh, studies on the Maya, I believe. Same with Carl Taub, Taube. I don't know how to say his name, like I said. Taub. Taub. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um, there Let was not know. a pronunciation on his Wikipedia page. <laughs> I just needed to know, like, if he was actually, like, general Mesoamerica. Which he is. He's general Mesoamerica. Gotcha. Um, but you can look at the literally, like, tens of UT professors just in the art history department alone. Um, UT, University of Texas. They have a fantastic program. I know um, University of Arizona, which is a school that I almost went to. They have really wonderful scholars, both in the anthropology department and in the art history department. So you can honestly... If you're at a university that's outside of Texas, check your university. You never know who you've got on your campus, and it could be somebody that's amazing. Yeah. Ask the art history department. Like, yeah. All those a... professors will know. Or you're if great. you're not an art history student and you're just interested in art history, email ask them. me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Email me. You can email me, artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. So, Victoria. Yes. Make sure you're following me on social media. At Art Watch Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. But Marissa, where can we find you on social media? And your businesses too. <laughs> so uh, my personal, which is probably the most one that you'll find uh, any updates on, would be Chasing Marissa on Instagram. My website, which is just newly redone by the wonderful M, was, is www.marissalynn.net, which those will probably be in the show bio or whatever. Yes, for proper spelling, because yes. that's important for any website. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't really use Twitter, so I will not be on Twitter. <laughs> you find me, I'm sorry. You'll yes, be severely disappointed. Um, yeah, she's got a fantastic Instagram page, and if you have any questions... Or corrections you might have if you're yes. um, maybe more experienced in the culture at yes. TOT. As we are still learning. We yeah, are still students. Tell. We're all learning. Absolutely. Email me, artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed to whatever podcast platform you're on and download each episode because it helps me track all of the behind-the-scenes data, where our listeners are coming from, how long they're staying, and this is really going to help me more for when I'm trying to get sponsors, which I'm doing at the moment. Um, so... Sometime soon, you'll probably hear some ads in the in the podcast. And again, follow on social media. Please become a patron if you really like what you're listening to. Um, yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful week. And I will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. All right, so before I close for real, Marissa decided that she wanted to create a promo code for all of the ArtWatch listeners on her print site. So if you go to her website and start shopping for her prints at the checkout, use the code ARTWATCH2021 to receive 10% off of your purchase. She has some fantastic prints from her travels around the world, including Teotihuacan, and you can get some wonderful prints, anything from paper all the way to metal. And oh my gosh, when I tell you those things are breathtaking. So check out her website, marissalynn.net, and use the code ARTWATCH2021 at the checkout for the print st store. Thanks, bye! <laughs>